Uh, but this week, we're going to launch into our new sermon series called In Him We Do. We've been studying through uh, the book of Ephesians, and in the first three chapters, over about six weeks, uh, we were in our sermon series called In Him We Are, and now we are going to move into uh, this section, uh, the back half of the letter of Ephesians, uh, chapters four through six, and the title, like I said, is In Him We Do. In the first three chapters, Paul spent almost the entire time telling us, encouraging us, giving us exhortation, but letting the church know and the people of God know who they are in Christ, right? So this was all about who we are. Very little about what we are called to do as the church and as believers, but he wanted us to know who we are because here's what Paul knows. Paul knows, and you and I know, that apart from being rooted, from having our foundation in who we are in Christ, Everything that we do is a byproduct of me and not of Christ living in and through me. So Paul has set this letter up in two pretty distinct sections. One through three is who we are in Christ, and chapters four through six are going to be now because of that, what are we going to do? Last week, we talked about becoming the dwelling place of God, how the Holy Spirit fills us and he changes us. And in that changing, we're transformed. And that's really what Paul is moving into is as Christ dwells in you through the power of Holy Spirit, you are changed and transformed and you, this is how you are to live in light of that truth. And as I prepared for uh, the sermon this week, uh, <clears throat> I spent quite a bit of time thinking about my kids. Not that I don't think about them normally, I do. Just maybe not as much and not in the same context as I did this week. Uh, Stacy and I, our children, all of them are moving into very different seasons of life. Our oldest is, uh, is, is getting married here in a few months. And um, how many of you have had a child that have got, has gotten married? Uh, okay, you, you know what I'm about to say then. It's a very strange feeling. It's a very, very strange feeling. There's only been a couple of times in my life where I've gone, huh, I can't believe that's actually happening. The first was when my, my first son, my oldest, uh, drove away in a car by himself for the first time. I went, oh, this can't be good. Life is, life is different now. And this season, uh, he's getting married. We also have one that is going to be a senior in high school. So he's moving towards a very different season. And then my youngest is moving into high school. So very different seasons of life. But anyway, it had me thinking about them and just thinking about children in general. And, you know, th there are certain things children do in the ways that they look that let you know that they're your child, right? Like my youngest son, Eli, looks like my wife. I mean, he is ate up with her side of the family. There is absolutely no doubt he looks just like her. But there are other things. There are things your children do that you didn't necessarily teach them to do, but they do them. And when they do them, you know they, they, they're doing them because they belong to you. So there's certain mannerisms they have, certain faces they make, certain ways they move their hands, the way they hold their fork, whatever it is. And you spot it and you go, oh my goodness, that's mine. That, that is a little me. My son Harrison is me. The way he talks, the way he moves, the way he does certain things, I spot it and I go, oh man, I wish I could tell you all the stuff not to do. Because you're me. You're me. And when they were little, uh, I, I tried to find this video, but I couldn't find it. When they were little uh, with Eli and with my other ones, I would always tell them two things. I'd say, uh, who loves you? And he'd go, mommy and daddy. And I'd say, who else loves you? Who loves you the most? 
Jesus loves me. And I've got a really great video somewhere of him singing this when he's about this big. And it's unbelievable. It would have been cute, but unfortunately I could not find it. And I wanted them when they were young to be rooted in this idea that I loved them and that Jesus loved them. And as they got older though, I began to teach them other things. And you guys have heard me say this before. There are three things that I ask, I tell all of my children that I want them to remember as they go out into the world. I want you to remember who you are. I want you to remember whose you are. And I want you to remember why you're there. Right? When I say, who are you? I'm Lofton. That's right. That's right. So when you go out into the world, I want you to remember that you, I have given you a name. My father gave me that name. His father gave him. There's a legacy that exists that is attached to this name. So when you go out into the world, the way that you conduct yourself and the way that you act doesn't just impact you. It impacts the name that you carry. So when you're out in the world, remember who you are. Remember that just because uh, Harrison or Taylor or Eli or McKenzie, when they act away in the world, it's not just them acting that way. It's that so-and-so's son. That's Ben Lofton's son, right? So I need you to remember who you are. You carry my name. What you do impacts that name. Remember whose you are. Remember that you belong to Jesus. And so when you're out in the world, the way you conduct yourself not only impacts my name, but it impacts the name of Christ that you carry out into the world. So remember whose you are. Remember that you belong to God, that you've been saved, that you've been sealed, and that should impact the way that you act in the world. Right? So it's not just behavior modification. Don't just act right because you're supposed to be right. You act right because you belong to somebody. You belong to me and you belong to Jesus. And what you do speaks volumes to that idea. And for us here today, we're going to talk a lot about whose we are. We're going to talk a lot about because of who we are in Christ, as believers, we're called to act a very specific way. Because when we don't, it speaks to whose we are. When I call myself a believer, when I tell people that I'm a Christian, what I do out in the world and how we interact with one another as the church doesn't just impact us, it impacts the name of Christ. And Paul, that's why Paul explained who they were so that now he could tell them, this is what you do because of who you are. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians 4. And we're just going to spend our time this morning in verses one through three. And I'm going to give you just a second uh, to get there. I love this, uh, these few verses. Um, there, there's so much here. This is one of the things that's interesting about preaching is you get into these things and you realize that there's far more material than you can actually cover in one 35 or 40 minute sermon. Right? There's just stuff everywhere. And you're like, how do I navigate through this? So if you're there, what do we say? We say the Bible is true. That's right. So let's see what the word of the Lord says. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So in Scripture, um, there are two different types of, not really commands, but they are. They're called indicative statements and imperatives. There's indicatives and there's imperatives. In the book of Ephesians, there are 40 imperatives. 39 in chapters 4 through 6, 1 in, in chapters 1 through 3. So the indicative statements are statements of truth. So in, in, verses, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul told us, 
who God was and who we are in him and what God is doing in our life and what he's going to do. These are statements of truth that had nothing to do with what we are to do or who we are and everything, we are, everything to do with who God is and who Christ is. Right, those are the indicatives. And Paul spent three chapters talking about those and now he's moving into the imperatives. You know what the one indicative statement Paul used in uh, chapters one through three was? It was remember. The only action that he gave us as believers and as a church do was to remember who we are in Jesus. But in verses, in chapters four through six, he moves from indicative to imperative statements. And there are 39 imperatives in chapters four through six. Paul is getting ready to launch into, now that you know who you are, here's what you do. And that's what he means when he says, I therefore. That's how he starts chapter four, the second half of the book, I therefore. Whenever you see therefore in the Bible, what do you do? You look back to see what it's there for, right? Because what he's saying is based on everything that I've just told you, based on everything that you know because of that, it impacts what I'm about to say. So Paul says, I, therefore, because you know who you are in Christ, because you've been made new, because you've been made, called to this church, here is what we do. In the first part of chapter four, in these three verses, what we're going to see is that it's saying that in him, we, as the church, are called to walk in unity. It's the first thing he's going to talk about us doing, that as the church, as the people of God, the first thing we do because of who we are in Christ is that we walk in unity. And there's three things that I want us to see in verses 1 through 3 that I think are going to help us understand what it means to walk in unity. And the first point is this. We are united because of our calling. Notice in verse one, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So we're united because of our calling. Well, what does that mean, Ben? What calling is Paul talked about? You know, in that one sentence, there's probably three or four different questions that I begin to ask myself. The first one is he throws that word worthy out there. So I begin to ask myself, well, what does worthy mean? And we're going to get to that in just a minute, but I would tell you that it impacts some of our calling, right? Because worthiness has to do with our conduct, has to do with our behavior. So when we walk in a manner that's worthy, he is speaking to our conduct. And I want you to remember always that this letter, like all of Paul's letters, were written to a church. They're written to a group of people. So while the things that we're going to talk about should apply to us individually as believers, the imperatives that Paul is writing about are really to us. So when he says, I urge you, we're from the South here, we should understand that as y'all. You all, right? It is a collective statement, not an individual statement. So when Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have been, to, to which you have been called, he's saying you all. So this is a broad calling. This is for all of the church. Paul says we're supposed to walk in that. What is walk? I mean, is he talking about actually walking? Is he talking about actions? Is he talking about that? You know, when I hear the word walk, I always think of my uh, basketball coach when I was in high school. Regardless of whether we won or whether we lost or what we did, we were supposed to walk a certain way. You're supposed to put your shoulders back and put your head up and you walk with integrity. You walk with character. You act right. You don't say stupid things. You don't, all those things, right? You walk that way. And I think that's what Paul's saying here. You walk in this manner that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So it's a, we conduct ourselves in a certain way. That's what it means to walk in a manner. We conduct ourselves a certain way. So I really think that we could read this verse to say, um, conduct your lives in a manner 
that's worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Uh, one quick aside, I love the fact here that Paul calls himself a prisoner for, for, a prisoner for Christ. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. I always thought it was interesting that he brought that up, that he put that here. Now, we all know that uh, Paul wrote these letters from prison. Rome had imprisoned him for what God had called him to do, and he had preached the gospel, and he had put him there. But Paul's statement is not, I, a prisoner of Rome. His, his statement is, I, a prisoner for the Lord, right? And I think what he's doing here is he's telling these believers, as he's getting ready to tell them how their lives should look and what it should be characterized with and what they should do, this is a statement of Paul saying, I have done these things and I am here because I'm a prisoner for the Lord. Your actions as you walk as believers, and we should all know this, will have consequences in a world that lives in opposition to what we believe. But nonetheless, these things are the same. And Paul's saying, I'm a prisoner for the Lord and I'm still gonna tell you that you are to live your life this way. You're still to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And the big idea in verse one through three though is about this word calling. Paul's saying that, all I've told you about who you are in Christ, all that I've said to you is the calling that unites us as a church. You see, Paul says that you've been saved and you've been sealed by Christ individually, but also from that, we've been called as a new people to be the church of Jesus Christ. This is the calling that Paul is talking about. Each one of you individually has a calling on your life. But when Paul's talking about walking worthy of the calling to which you've been called, he's not necessarily talking about that particular individual calling. He's talking about this calling to become the church of Jesus. Remember back in Ephesians 2, Pastor Matt proked, uh, preached about the fact that God said that he had broken down the walls of hostility to create for himself a new people, right? He told you that the, the, the walls of hostility between Jews and Gentiles were massive and they were violent and they hated one another. God says that in Christ, I have broken down that wall because you believe in Jesus and I believe in Jesus and we've been made new individually. We now become collectively this new thing called the church. And that's the unity that Paul is talking about here. We are unified as a new people, as a new people. Look at what Galatians 327 and 28 says, says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is your calling as the church. You're all one. Anything that any differences you have between one another, anything that separates you, uh, the truth that you are new in Christ and that he has called you to this new people breaks right through all of that and unites you under this brand new calling as one people that belong to God. The church is a gathering of people that have been united under, under the banner of their calling through faith in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 9 calls you a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This is, he didn't say you're a royal priest, Right? He doesn't say you're a holy person. He doesn't say you're a person from all possession. He says you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a group of people. You are a people, a people for God's own possession. You know, the word that they use in the New Testament for church is ecclesia. This means call, called out ones. 
We are a group of people that have been saved individually by Christ so that we could be saved to the church. We are the called out ones of God. And Paul is saying his exhortation to this group of Ephesian believers is to conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of that calling. That not only have I saved you, but I have created this thing that is the church that is mine and I have grafted you into that thing. That's the calling that unites us. We are united because of that calling. But I wanna be clear here, when Paul starts talking about being worthy, I wanna make sure that we're abundantly clear. And I think Paul spent the first three chapters of Ephesians making this point, none of us are worthy. None of us are worthy of the salvation that we receive from Christ. None of us are worthy. We haven't done anything in our life to earn what God did for us. Salvation for you and I is an act of grace of God, his love for his creation through the power of the cross and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's nothing else but the blood of Christ that justifies and makes you right in the sight of God. We are not worthy on any level. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. You know what you don't get to boast about? Being made new because you didn't have anything to do with it. If you're in here today and you belong to Jesus, he made you new, you didn't do anything. So when he talks about walking in a manner worthy, don't think that this worth comes from anything that we have inside of us. It is the salvation by God's grace that is our calling and it's under the banner of Christ's lordship that we are unified as a, as a church. I talked about it a little bit last week. This is our deepest and most common bond that we have with anyone anywhere on the planet earth that calls themselves a Christ follower is that we belong to the church of God. I have more in common with the believer that our mission team is serving with in Africa and Kenya right now. I have a deeper bond with them than I do with people that might live in my own home that don't know the Lord. It is that calling that unites them. Little C Church is New Beginnings. Big C Church is the global church of God. And that is what the calling, um, that is what Paul's talking about when he talks about our calling. And we're to walk in a manner that's worthy of that calling. But the good news for us is Paul doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just go, hey, walk in a manner worthy. No, you guys go figure out what worthy is. That'd be a disaster, right? Because what I think is worthy and what you think is worthy might be two different things. But the great thing about God's word and about the Holy Spirit that inspired it is it's a book of clarity. It tells me what it means to be worthy. And that brings me to our second point. We are unified in Christ-like character. We are unified in Christ-like character. In verse one, Paul says that I urge you. Think of this for a moment. It's not just, an, this is a very strong word. I implore you. Think of Paul saying, I am begging you as the church to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. But what does he mean by worthy? I was doing some, when I was studying, I read several different translations of this. Most of them say worthy. One of them says to walk worthily. To walk worthily. I loved that use of that word. I mentioned it a few minutes ago, but what he's talking about here, when he's talking about walking worthy, he's talking about your conduct as believers. Our lives should be characterized by Christ-like conduct and Christ-like character. 
And that's the thing that impacts our actions in the world. We don't go out and do things that are Christ-like. We are filled with Christ. He is changing us into his image. And it is those things that make our actions worthy of our calling. Look at verse 2. He says that you're supposed to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I looked at every one of those, and as I read them, I went, nope, 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 and nope. I started thinking about Ben Lofton and the way that if I had my own devices, would I live my life this way? And the answer is a resounding no. Might I stumble into these things every now and then? Sure, maybe. I might happen to be humble from time to time. Gentleness, maybe. Patience, nope. Bearing with someone in love, begrudgingly, angrily, maybe. But Paul says these are the characteristics that should, that should define not only the individual life of the believer, but they should define his church, his bride. This is what he says it looks like to walk worthy. What is humility? Humility is thinking of others more than myself, right? Thinking of others more than myself. That means my concern for every one of you in this room, because of our united calling, I have a deep and abiding concern for each one of you more than my own needs. Now, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands because I don't want all of you to have to do it and I don't want any of you to have to lie about it. But here's the point. None of us operate naturally from that position. Did you know that in the Greek, there is no word for humility? They don't, they don't, there's not a translated word. I have this really cool uh, uh, program on my laptop called Logos Bible Software, and it does, it's, it's smart, so I don't have to be. So um, you go in, and you pull up the Bible, and you highlight a word, you click study, and it'll give you translations. It'll give you the Hebrew, it'll give you the Greek, it'll give you all these different things. When you highlight humility and you click, you click study, it only gives you the Hebrew word. There is no Greek word for humility. They lived in a time that was full of sex, self-exaltation, making much of me, uh, bragging on myself. And if we are honest with ourselves, this is the very same world that we live in today. Make much of me. I love me some me. Look at me. Look at social media. Look at all the things that I can put out there that are about Ben. And Paul says, in light of all that, we're supposed to walk in humility. Why? Because it's Christ's characteristic. No one was more humble than Jesus. Look at Philippians 2.8, talking about Jesus. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. There is no greater act of humility than the cross of Christ where he laid down his life for you and for I. You want to know what it means to be humble? That's what it means to be humble. If we want to walk in Christ-like conduct and character, we have to pay attention to the person that modeled it for us. You notice he puts humility and gentleness together. These two come together. There is no gentleness without humility, and humility breeds gentleness. But here's the problem for most of us. Gentleness and meekness, when I say that word, what do we think? We think weakness. We think soft people. We think doormat. We think all these things. This is not the word that Paul uses here. The word gentleness in this, the word meekness maybe in your translation, really means self-controlled strength. Self-controlled strength. It's not weakness, it's a manner of self-control that comes from being humble, that comes from walking in humility. Look again at the person who modeled this for us, Beth, Jesus, in Matthew eleven twenty-nine. 29. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
That's not weakness. Jesus says, I am gentle and I love you and bring me everything you have and set it on me because I can bear the weight of it, but yet still operate in a way that is gentle, that is self-control. And when we're walking in humility and gentleness, it breeds patience. Patience is the one I would argue that I struggle with the most. My wife's sitting right over there. She should be nodding her head like this, right? She may have, her neck might be hurting by the time I finish talking about patience. I'm not a patient guy. I went and played golf. I told you that with one of our elders, Rusty Robinette, on, on Friday. He could tell you I'm not patient. It took about four hours to figure that out. I have, a, I, have a, I have a lack of patience. It's not something that we at all are born with. Think about putting a baby or a toddler on the floor and putting a toy across the room from them and then going, hey, I need you to just wait a few minutes before you get that. Okay, no problem. No, what are they gonna do? They're gonna immediately bolt towards the thing they want. No patience. We're not born with this. This is something that is created in us as we're made more and more into the image of Christ. Romans 2.4 says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Who is more patient than, than God? The fact that we're here and we're saved is a testament to the patience of God. You read the entire Old Testament, you see God's people constantly running away from him, constantly doing what God says not to do. And what does God always do? God lovingly, with humility and gentleness, draws them back to himself. Extreme patience. This is the characteristic, Paul says, should characterize his church to one another. Humility and gentleness. Patience. And then we get to bearing with one another. <clears throat> you know what this doesn't mean? Oh, fine. This doesn't mean begrudgingly looking at somebody and go, okay, one more time, I'll walk through it with you. Doesn't mean angrily doing it. It's this picture of um, enduringly and lovingly walking with someone. Uh, there's three ways that the word love is translated in the Bible. There's phileo, eros, and agape. Phileo is brotherly love. Eros is romantic love. Agape love is the love that we are to exhibit because Christ is in us because that's the way God loves his people. Without qualification, without requiring anything from you. It is a love that is beyond circumstance. It is beyond action. It is beyond anything. So when we start thinking about that, bearing with one another, lovingly enduring with one another apart from the actions of the other person. This is what Paul says marks the church of God. As believers, as saved people, we are united in this conduct, in this Christ-likeness with one another that impacts how we live out there. Because here's the truth. If we're not doing it in here, I know we're not doing it out there. What the world sees of us begins in this place with one another. The church is, we're the called ones. We're the ones called out by God. And if we can overcome the small things, if we're rooted in the big thing. How many of you guys have been in churches where the biggest thing we could talk about was the color of the carpet or the color of the walls or how we're gonna spend this 50 bucks or I don't like that song or I don't like the way he does this or all those things rather than going, I'm willing to look beyond those things because I'm unified by Christ-like character and the way we love one another. Those things become unimportant if we understand that we are united because of our calling and we're united in Christ-like action and humility and gentleness and love and bearing with one another because we are the people of 
God. We are saved by Christ from our sins, saved into his church, filled with the Holy Spirit, being made into his image. These are the things that we should do because these are who Jesus is. Not because I think humility is a good idea, but because Christ was humble. His word calls me to humility. Therefore, I pursue it through the power that works in me. Remember what we learned in Ephesians 1 through through 3. It's the transforming work of Christ through the filling of his Holy Spirit that produces these things in our life. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control doesn't say, hey, you guys, go be this thing. It says the fruit of the Spirit. All of the things Paul is telling us should mark our lives are only produced by the Spirit of God working in your life and through you. Our lives are to be saturated with these things. And we don't naturally have the ability to do that. Like I said, you may fall into one every now and then, but to be marked by humility, to be marked by gentleness, to be marked by bearing with one another, we just don't have the ability to do it. We will fall apart under the, the crushing weight of the expectation if all we lean on is our own effort. We have to lean on uh, the power of Christ at work within us. And that brings me to my third and final point today. We're united by the Holy Spirit. We're, we're united because of our calling. We're united in our Christ-like conduct. And we are united by the Holy Spirit. Paul said, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I love this word eager. This doesn't imply that it's something you should not, you should want to not do, right? How many of you are eager to do things you don't want to do? No, I tell you, like getting my children to mow the grass. Nobody eager about that. Oh, I don't want to, I got to do it. No, no, no. Because you know what the problem is? We're not unified in what my yard's supposed to look like. He don't care. He could be up to here and we can lose his brother in it and it wouldn't matter. Oh, oh my God. But when we're unified, when I'm united in the calling, when I'm united in my character and the way I act, I become eager to maintain this unity that I have experienced. There's an eagerness to it. And the word maintain really carries a connotation of protecting or uh, keeping up, guarding it. Make every effort enthusiastically to protect and guard this unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's what I'll tell you. We don't create the unity, but it is our call to eagerly and enthusiastically guard and protect it through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit creates the unity. The Holy Spirit is the unity. Remember it said, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the unity. It is the thing. We have talked about this to no end over the past seven or eight weeks, but it is the dwelling of Christ in our hearts, the power of the Holy Spirit that creates this thing that becomes the unity. Apart from it, we have no unity. We fall apart. So the Holy Spirit creates the unity. The Holy Spirit is the unity. And finally, I would tell you, the Holy Spirit preserves the unity. He says that the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, that peace that he's talking about only comes from knowing the Lord. When he says bond, think of it like cement. The unity that is created by the Holy Spirit and we experience through our conduct and we, and, and we know because we know who we are in Christ is bonded. We are bonded together in the peace that comes from that. And apart from that, we have 
chaos. We have anxiety. We have divisiveness. We go back and forth. We rub. We worry about all the wrong things because that bond of the peace that comes from the Holy Spirit does not exist. Our calling as spirit-filled Christians, unity is created by our being made part of the church through the filling of his Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is that unity and he preserves that unity by the way that he works in us and creates this Christ-like character. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. The analogy that Paul uses here, I love the idea of one body. Because my left hand and my right hand and my feet and all the other parts of my body all do different things, but they all do different things because they have one purpose, to make sure that this body does what it's supposed to do, stays together, stays operational. Each one of you has an individual calling on your life, things you're supposed to do, think ways you're supposed to live out that thing that you're called to by God. But overarching all of that is this global calling to the church to be united under the banner of Jesus and his lordship and to love one another well and to walk in this specific way because we're one body, all joined by the one spirit. The Holy Spirit creates the unity. He is the unity and we are bonded together as the church in our shared experience of the peace that is provided through Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing else. That is what unifies us. That's how we walk in unity. We're made more and more into the image of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Apart from that, we're in here trying real hard and effort is never going to be good enough. As I wrote this sermon, I thought to myself, this could have easily been a work harder, be better thing. I could have easily gotten up here and said, you know what, I'm gonna give you five ways to be more humble. I could have given you my best effort and all that and said, just go out there and work harder and do more and be better. But you know what that leads to? That leads to failure and it leads to frustration and it leads to you walking away going, you're telling me to do something that I can't do. So let me free you from that feeling. You can't do it. But Christ in you can do it. There are a thousand things that separate us in this church, but there is one thing that is infinitely bigger than all of them. That is our calling. That is our Christ-like character that's created in us. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Those are the things that unite us here. Our effort is never going to be good enough. If I even told you to try to be more humble, how would that be? Hey, do me a favor. If, you're, if, you, if you think you excel in humility, go ahead and shoot your hand up for me. Exactly. Exactly. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that because the minute that does that, guess what? Nope, nope. Not, not. We don't have the ability to do those things. But remember, as we close out, there are two things that we can end this way. And the first thing is the only way that we do is if we know who we are. You have to know who you are. You have to be given that new name. You have to be called into that family that provides you with all the unity that you need through the Holy Spirit. And the only way that you get there is through the cross of 
Christ, nothing else. If you're in here today and you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, hear me say to you, he's calling you. He is speaking your name. Do you know who you are? Because apart from that, you will always struggle. You will always walk in disunity with, with the people in this room and with the world. You know, what, you know what it looks like to not have unity in the church? It means we have more in common with the people that are outside of the church than we do with the people that are inside of the church. You know what happens when that happens? I become to look like the world and not like Christ. And when I can identify that in myself, I have to ask the question, do I know who I am? Have I been given the new life? Have I been made new? Have I surrendered my life to the fact that God loves me so deeply and is willing to overlook everything that I've ever done in order to forgive me and to have me so that he can put me in his church so that we can be unified, so that we can show God's glory out in a world that is in desperate need of it. So the first way that we respond is, do you know who you are? Have you been made new in Christ? If not, today, he is calling you. If we're a believer in the room then, what do we do with this? It's the questions we ask ourselves. Does my conduct in the world and in, in the church support what is important in my life? Do I value unity in the bride of Christ? Remember, the, 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 the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. The bride. You know, what, you know who I can't be unified with in this world? Somebody that speaks ill or mistreats my bride. We can't be friends no more. I'm out. And as believers, though, somehow we think we're forgiven or let go or able to not walk in unity with other people who are members of the bride of Christ. You know how we love the bride well? We love one another well. The Bible says that they will know us by our love. Not the way we love them, yes, but the way that we love one another. By the way we walk in unity. Do we live our lives in a manner that tells us, that tells the world that we value the church and all that it stands for? Not the little things, the big thing. You've been made new. Royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So Christ's call and Paul's exhortation is that we walk in a manner that's worthy of that with one another because once again, if we don't do it here, we'll never do it out there. This is the thing God loves, this church. That's why Paul tells us to walk in unity. But the only way we do that is by the filling of the Holy Spirit. Once again, you've heard me say the word filling of the Holy Spirit because I'll tell you like I told you last week, a, your moment of salvation and the continuing filling of the Holy Spirit are the two biggest things in the life of a believer. The moment Christ justified me and the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in my life to sanctify me and make me more and more and more to the image of Jesus. If you want to walk in humility and gentleness, if you want to know what it's like to bear with one another in love, if you want to protect and guard and love the church and protect the unity, ask God to fill you with his spirit because that's where the power comes from. So as the church, we pray. We pray and beg God to do that in us. 
We, we, we admit before God that I can't do it, God. I don't have the ability to do what you're calling me to do, but thanks. Remember, we go back to thanking God. Thanks be to God that I don't have to because he does it in me. All I have to do is ask. So if you're a believer in the room, you call yourself a member of God's church, beg him to fill you with your Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, so that we can be the thing that we're called to be, so that we can be united in Christ-like character. Walk in unity because you know you've been called to the church of God. And understand that your unity is only possible because it's in the Holy Spirit and not in our own power. So we're gonna sing and we're gonna worship. And as we do, our staff will be down front. And if you wanna have a conversation with somebody about knowing who you are, we would love to talk with you this morning. If you're a believer and you say, man, I struggle in these areas, Pastor Ben, me too. We're unified in that for sure. But we can always hit our knees and beg God to do the work in us that we can't do. So my challenge to you would be, if you struggle in humility and gentleness and bearing with one another, which should be, I don't know, all of us, pray. Beg God to do the thing that he wants to do. Beg God to do, you know why, how I know he wants to do it? Because he told me he did, right here because he says, be this. If God tells you to be something, he wants to turn you into a person that can be that thing. Let him do that work today. So I'm gonna pray, then we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing. Our staff will be down front if you need someone to be pray with, if you need to be prayed for, if there's a burden in your life that you wanna lay down, this altar's open, our staff's available. We would love uh, the opportunity to speak with you. Father God, thank you so much for your word, Lord. Thank you for the way it shapes us the way it molds us, Lord. Thank you that you've given us your spirit, God, to grow us into the image of our Savior, Lord. And I ask for our church today, God, that you would fill us with all humility and gentleness, that the power of your Holy Spirit would work through us, that we would be able to lovingly endure with one another, regardless of circumstance, God, knowing that we have been called as a holy nation to be your people that we bear your name and let our conduct always be worthy of that, God. So give us your spirit this morning, Lord. Turn us into the people that you have called us to be, God, because apart from that, we have nothing, Father. We love you. I thank you for Jesus, for what he's done in my life, for what he's done in my family, for what he's done in this church. I thank you for what he continues to do, Lord. And I am looking with expectation and anticipation to all that you are going to do in and through us through the power of your Holy Spirit, God. And we pray all of these things in the mighty and in the beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.